Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is not about having everything, and it's not really about those absences. It's about the positives. It's about finding what positively is good in your life. And even a significant sort of narrowing of capacities or abilities can leave in place an enormous range of good things, enough good things to have a good enough life. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So, the sun will come up tomorrow. You'll pay taxes, you'll also die, and life is hard. We know this to be a truism, and yet so much of contemporary life compels us to fight it. We're meant to be happy. We're meant to live our best, most blissful, potential stacked lives. Today, however, I talk with Kieran Setier, a professor of philosophy at MIT, who argues we should not live our best lives. It's better to aspire to a life that is, well, good enough, which sounds a bit Grim and definitely less sexy than a hashtag find your bliss or hashtag unleash your potential self-help promise. But stick this one out because Kieran argues that philosophical wisdoms definitely show otherwise. Kieran has written far and wide for the New York Times, the London Review of Books, the Yale Review and way more. And he's just appeared on Sam Harris's podcast, applying philosophical wisdoms to things like baseball and whether we should trust the comedian Dave Chappelle and how to deal with a midlife crisis. But in his latest book, Life is Hard, he draws on philosophers such as Aristotle, Wittgenstein, as well as Groundhog Day and Joan Didion to provide a roadmap for navigating life when it's hard, which is to say, all the time. As this podcast progresses, I'm starting to notice something of a revival of philosophy, moral philosophy in particular, and thinking more broadly, stepping in at a juncture in history where we really do need guidance and we lack the community and political leaders required to get us through the difficulties ahead. I talked to Kieran about this as well as how to and why we should abort trying to be happy, which I know is something a bunch of neo self-helpers have been saying for a while. But in this chat, we actually get to a convincing thesis as well as a prescription for how to live life in the face of existential threat, which wonderfully involves a thought experiment where the human race goes infertile and we have to find a point to living that doesn't involve, well, all the usual expectations. Okay, so welcome to Wild, Kieran Sedia. 
intrigued as to actually how you came across my podcast because I think your book agent uh, reached out to me saying you'd come across it. Is that right? That is true. I'm a fan of Catherine May and she appeared on your podcast. Oh, yeah. And so I listened partly because she was on it and then really loved it. So yeah, that's how, how I found it. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that was a lovely interview. For anyone who's listening, I'll put it in the show notes just as a reminder if you didn't catch it when it came out a couple of months ago. Thank you. It's it's nice to cross paths with a Catherine May fan. I absolutely love also to get philosophers onto this podcast and to talk about their love of philosophy and I think the importance of it, particularly at this juncture in history where there are a lot of unanswered questions or at least a lot of uncertainty. And we're lacking leaders, quite frankly, and I think there's a space for philosophers here. So I've noticed a bit of a revived interest, particularly in moral philosophy, the kind that tells us how to live a good life. And from what I understand from having read your book, you've had a bit of a swing in that direction in recent years yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about why this swing and why you think there's actually a swing more broadly to philosophy? Well, I do think it's because people are in the face of life being difficult, life being hard, forced to think about the question, well, what do I really want? How can I live a good life? You know, this is the kind of reflection that's, I suppose, behind the great resignation during the pandemic, people reassessing what they really want in life. For me, I mean, I'm a moral philosopher by training, so I've been doing it my whole academic career, I think the point at which I realized there was a disconnect and that there was something to sort of rebuild was uh, my previous book was about having a midlife crisis and realizing that I was doing things that I really thought were valuable and worthwhile, and yet at the same time felt a kind of hollowness. And I thought, well, this is the kind of puzzle that moral philosophers ought to be addressing. Like, How is it possible for people who are doing pretty well to nevertheless feel a kind of meaninglessness in their lives. And I realized that there's a, there was a sort of gap between the kinds of questions about important questions about justice and our obligations and so on, and what the ideal life might look like that I was studying in my academic life and the kinds of conversations I was having with friends, which were about having a scary diagnosis or the challenges of parenting or you know, failure in life and how do you deal with that or their parents being sick or dying and think, and I thought there has to be a way to reconnect these two. And, and, you know, in the history of moral philosophy, I think the idea that thinking about how to live philosophically should make your life better is one that philosophers for a long time really clung to. And then it sort of got divorced in the 17th, 18th century. And I think we're, we're sort of due for a, a kind of reintegration of philosophical perspectives. I don't know whether it's just because I go and hunt down philosophers and ask them to come on this podcast, but I do see quite a number of books that are using philosophy to solve problems that we've been previously trying to solve with quote unquote self-help manuals that just tell us to, hey, you know, live your best life, feel the bliss, et cetera, et cetera, rainbows and unicorns. And I know that philosophy actually goes in a different direction to that, which is what you bring to your book, Life is Hard. We might cut to the gist of your most recent thesis in, in your book, Life is Hard, where you wrestle with the ultimate paradox or catch-22 that we face as humans. We want to live our best life or we want to be happy, or at least we think we do. But of course, it's entirely elusive. So striving for it, not only is it futile, it brings about it's opposite. You know, it brings about a fair bit of unhappiness, frustration, and sense of failure. And from what I gather, your book pretty much says the salve is to not aspire to live your best life. And that the most we can aspire to is a life that is good enough. 
it all sounds a bit meh and bland and not particularly <laughs> sizzling, um, especially if you've had a diet of self-help books for the last 20 years. But can you explain what you mean by that and why a life that is good enough is actually, I don't want to use the word better, but I guess that's what I mean, the better way to live. Or maybe just the more authentic way to live. I mean, I think part of it is that for most of us, most of the time, the best life a kind of life of bliss is just unrealistic. It's not really available to us. So striving for it is just going to bring frustration and that we have to live in the world as it is, not the world as we wish it would be. You know, we, to live well means to engage with reality in a way that really makes sense. And so that for most of us, that that is the sort of practical problem we face. I mean, there's a, a, an anecdote I tell in the book, I sort of invite the reader to share that unsurprisingly, actually was from my own life, which was, I remember a friend maybe 15 years ago talking about some kind of problem they were facing. And I had this sort of self-help, but also philosopher's mentality that my job was to either convince them that it would all be fine, like come up with some argument that showed, yes, the problem is not a problem, or come up with some kind of theory that would solve it. Like, this is what you need to do, problem fixed. And I realized in that encounter that those forms of reaction, kind of denying the ways in which life is hard and just saying, we can all figure it out, it's all going to be great, are can operate as sort of forms of denial, like failures to just acknowledge what someone is going through. And that that kind of acknowledgement is really crucial to living a good life, living a good enough life. So part of it is just that it's the only way to avoid acknowledging hardship and thinking, ah, good enough is good enough, is to sort of deny reality at least you know if you're unless you're extraordinarily lucky and that you know those were the challenges i was talking about with friends it was how do i live a good life despite whatever i might be going through and you know i th i think that vision which you know it, it it's less idealistic in some ways than the promise that you're going to live a perfect life but at the same time it's just more realistic it's it's more achievable and therefore empowering and optimistic yeah i mean i think your thesis goes beyond just going well you know, and to use a modern self-helpism, it is what it is. Like, so we better adjust. It's not just about pragmatics. There is also something quite beautiful, deeper, more nourishing about living a good life, a good life that, and a good life, I think, is what you and many philosophers throughout the ages have tried to sort of conjure, is a life that is everything. It's all of it. It's all of the emotions. It's all of the ups and downs and finding beauty in that. And of course, you know, in the last, I don't know, how many years would it be, Kieran? Like in many ways, I think since neoliberalism, you know, took hold in the 1970s, I think that has intensified this idea that we should be buying our way to happiness rather than enduring or toughening up to a good life. I mean, it's, I think some people would date it back about a hundred years, right? I mean, when would you say that this shift from the wisdoms that told us to endure, to build resilience, to find beauty in pain and suffering and servitude, switch to you must be happy? Um, that's what you must pursue. When did that kind of happen? I mean, there are philosophers who have said it's all about happiness in sort of classical antiquity. There are hedonist philosophers like Epicurus who, who said that. But True. their vision was very different from what you think of when you think about hedonism today. Their vision was, it's all about being happy. So achieve contentment by living a very simple, ascetic life with friends, you know, in a, in a kind of garden of philosophical reflection. I think the idea that happiness is about getting more and more good stuff 
and that uh, relentless acquisition, relentless pursuit of more and more stuff that gives you satisfaction. That idea is an idea that comes out of sort of 19th century thinking about the mercantile organization of society and industrial capitalism. And so it's really a kind of transition that happens in the 18th century where kind of acquisitiveness, getting good stuff for yourself, shifts from being a kind of vice that you might try to avoid to being a kind of public spirited thing that we can you know praise the entrepreneur for and and i think it's actually even broader than that i mean i think that there's just a contrast between aiming at happiness as a kind of subjective feeling that you feel good and actually aiming to live a good life i mean this again is where sort of acknowledging reality comes in to live a good life you have to be acknowledging reality and the demands it makes on you as well as the joy that it offers you and to be happy is just it's just a feeling you could be happy while living a, a lie or totally deceived you know philosophers like these funny thought experiments like imagine someone in a kind of solitary version of the matrix where they're plugged into a simulation and nothing is real but they feel great and that's really not they're getting the dopamine hits via some electrode or something exactly and so you know there's happiness there but that is they're barely living a life at all and so i think you're right the kind of there's a kind of deep uh shift that we need to make from thinking of happiness as the goal to thinking of it in terms of living a good life and part of that shift again that i, I think you're pointing to is that in living a good life it's not just about you it's about dealing with the world the way you should both in relation to yourself and in relation to the people around you yeah, you've picked up on something there. I, I think that happiness, as you say, is subjective. And for some reason, humans, we're not satisfied, you know, with that. We actually want to be part of a broader mechanism, a broader surge forward. We want to be part of something that makes sense at a humanity or species or even planetary level. And so the singular happy emotion, it just doesn't cut it in the long run. We want to know that there is something deeper, more significant and meaningful, that there's a broader framework that we fit into. I know that you prescribe a, a number of different ways to go about living well, living a good life as opposed to your best life. One of the things that you focus on is pain. And I know that you've suffered chronic pelvic pain. I also suffer chronic pain with an autoimmune disease and that, you know, it's tedious. It's relentless. Yes, tedious. And really, I mean, I've looked into this in a previous book that if you go back through history, so many of the spiritualists and philosophers and big thinkers had chronic pain. And I do think that pain can take you to a space where you've got to look for something broader, more solid, more expansive, because actually on, on the one hand, you've got to hang on to that thing when you're in the worst of the pain, in worst of the existential pain as well. But it's also, you know, the fleeting happiness stuff that everybody else is doing is just not always available. So you look for something else. But could you just talk a little bit more about how pain is actually a path, pain and hardship is actually a path to living a good life? I think what you said is really insightful. Actually, I, I kind of, I think I really resonate to this idea that if you're in a, if you're living with chronic pain the idea that it's all about feeling good is going to seem particularly hollow like you have to sort of reach outside your own body and its discomforts to find some source of meaning and i, I think one thing that comes out of the of that kind of experience that i draw on in in my thinking about this is a kind of uh sort of compassion for for the human condition and the ways in which other people are going through this so it it's Many, many people I've talked about this. I, I didn't used to talk. This is the book is the first time I've really 
gone public with the fact that I have this condition. So it's sort of weird. I imagine you've written about your condition too. There's a kind of weird switch yeah, from going I to have. a handful of very close friends know about it to, eh, you can just read about it in a book. And part of, I, I think, why that's empowering is that the conversations I have with people suggest that so many people are going through difficulties like this. I mean, again, there's a kind of experience I, I, I think that epitomizes this, which is I remember at some point when I was sort of feeling the, the deep unfairness of having this, this condition, I remember sort of looking at someone else across a room and thinking they were smiling and whatever. And I thought, oh, I mean, you, you don't know how lucky you have it not to be in pain. And then I, my second thought was, actually, hold on. It's not like I never smile. People look across at me and I'm smiling. So I don't even know what's going on with this person. And I think that's something that you get from kind of invisible illness of various kinds is that you realize that you don't know what other people are going through and that there's a sort of connection with other people, even people you haven't shared this particular experience with that can be forged by that. And so that's part of what I think is illuminating about it. I mean, it has to do with partly just growing up into the reality that people are dealing with hardship in their lives and sort of appreciating that more vividly oneself. I, I mean, the other thing that I think is really, that, that sort of came out of my thinking about chronic pain was the most useful thing for me about it is that you're right. It's the tedium of it that is worse. It's the worst thing. It's the sense that I can't really remember not being in pain and tomorrow it's going to happen again and tomorrow it's ha going to happen again. And the more I think about the duration, the worse it is. If, if I just think, well, one day, I mean, some people have worse pain than mine. Mine is mostly not debilitating. Like, I can get through my daily activities fine. Sleep deprivation occasionally is a bit of a nightmare, but Ditto. <laughs> that is very hard to bounce back from. But the day to day, I think, actually, I could have a pretty good day while in some pain. So if it was just today, I'd be like, eh, big deal. And sort of trying to think, well, it really is just a sequence of days. And if I could just stop thinking about it in this durational terms, about the tedium, I could sort of get more out of my life. And that kind of shift, I think, has been helpful to me in coping with it. There's this, I, I don't know if you know, if Kimmy Schmidt, the the sitcom has made it to Australia. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think it's on Netflix. So she, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Netflix, of course. So, so she was held captive underground in a bunker for 15 years. And her mantra was, you can stand anything for 10 seconds. And I think there's some, there's a deep insight in that. I mean, 10 seconds might be a little bit short, but for me thinking, just have a good day, worry about tomorrow, tomorrow is a kind of useful shift. One thing that I think pain does, and just picking up on that's something you said a moment ago, there's this deep unfairness. You can get into the most ugly, resentful head, can't you? Where it's just why me, you know, it's unbearable to be in that headspace. And so you've got to find another way. And of course, the opposite to that is to find compassion. And that's often what we have to do to ricochet out of a fuggy headspace that doesn't serve us and drives us mental. So I think there's that piece in all of that. But also chronic illness or any kind of disadvantage that sees you become something of an outsider, sees you with a fair bit of time on your own. You know, you cast aside and anyone listening to this who is in pain knows the loneliness of being cast aside. And But the benefit of that is that you have to wrestle your way internally to a better way and to find a point to living that is not all the rainbows and unicorns. It's not about cafe lattes out with friends or whatever it might be, the, the usual conveyor belt of life stuff, you've actually got to wrestle your way through to the deeper thing, the bigger thing, 
to be able to put one foot in front of the other and, and really choose to stay alive each day. I mean, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I sort of get the impression from reading about your story that that's certainly all that time and loneliness also afforded you an awareness and openness that enabled deep thinking, you know, to philosophize your way through to something. Well, I hope that's true. I, I definitely think there's a, a real insight in, in this suggestion that it sort of forces your hand, that you can't just, you have to find something that is a source of meaning and satisfaction. And if it's not going to be the, you know, feeling good in your body, you've got to look somewhere else. And that that can sort of generate fruitful introspection of the, the kind you're describing. So I think there's some truth in that. I, I mean, there's a kind of risk here, which I, I suppose is worth warning against. There is a kind of tendency this goes along with a certain kind of philosophical argument to say everything is for the best, like everything happens for a reason. There's a kind of there's a kind of saccharine way of responding to say chronic illness or some any kind of hardship in life where you slide from getting something good out of it, looking to make something of it, which is a kind of healthy response to thinking, well, this must be somehow for the best. And sometimes I well, often I think, nah, it's not that it's for the best and you shouldn't that's another kind of form of denial of reality to think everything happens for a reason. Sometimes it's really bad. Yeah, you refer to it as theodicy. Is it? Have I got? I pronounced that right? Theodicy. Yeah, theodicy. yeah. So this is—it's an idea that exactly it sort of comes out of um, philosophy of religion, where the idea is: well, God is omnipotent, and He loves us, and He knows everything. So what's up with human suffering? And some of it might be due to free will or something, but there's an awful lot of what seems to be undeserved suffering. Now, even though that's a specifically kind of theological problem about God, there is a kind of secular version. It's, it's the same kind of inclination to say, why is this happening? There must be a reason. And I think that is not a great thought. The thought, there must be a reason. It, it must somehow be for the best. I think that's a mistake. The healthy thought and the, and the fruitful thought and the one that you were pointing towards is more like, well, okay, this is happening. What can I make of it? What can, where can mm -hmm. I go with this that will find something fruitful? And that, I think, is a way of sort of, again, sort of acknowledging and leaning into reality that, that doesn't involve self-deception or wishful thinking and that uh, I, I think... Uh, is sort of a, a fruitful way to approach chronic illness, but also other kinds of hardship. Yeah, I get slightly offended and upset when someone says it is what it is. Oh, well, that kind of thinking, it's meant to be. To me, it feels so passive apart from anything else. And I feel we're meant to be active in anything that we do as humans on this planet. And so far better to, you know, my mantra is let's max this. Let's get out of this what we could get out of it. And look, it actually brings me to something, a really interesting point. I really enjoyed reading about this. It's a delicate point, but it brings out something that I hadn't really thought about before. I think it's in the chapter where you talk about, you know, pain. Yeah, I think it's actually in your first chapter of the book. You talk about an argument that disability activists often educate us on. If you don't mind, I might actually just read out a little bit in the book that really grabbed me and then I'll get you to extrapolate from there if that's okay because I think this little bit really sums it up well. Sure. And, of course, you build up to this. You don't go straight into it. There's a lot of respect for the ins and outs and, you know, subtleties of life for anyone with some kind of disability. But you say disabilities prevent us from engaging with valuable things. Sure, they are harmful in a way, but no one has access to or space for everything of value anyway. And there's no harm in being estranged from much that's good. Most disabilities leave enough of value in place for lives that are no worse than the majority and sometimes better. And what I took from, from that, Kieran, is that 
you're basically saying, all right, so people with a disability of whatever sort, they might be prevented, say, from being able to go for a run if they're in a wheelchair. But in a lifetime, we can't access all the wonderful aspects of life, right? We just don't have enough time to gorge on it all. And so to be almost have your choices narrowed, a bit like what we were saying with pain, where, you know, you sort of have to go in quite close and insular and you've got to find, you know, you've sort of rendered choiceless to some extent. That then enables you to make the most, to max, <laughs> to max the situation that you do have access to. And so, disability advocates and, and activists point out, well, all right, we might have a disability, but that doesn't prevent us, A, from having a great life and B, from contributing to a great life because it just means our oeuvre, access to various goodnesses is a bit narrow, but show me a person that can access all of them anyway. Exactly. I mean, there's a kind of fa- another fantasy here that about what an, about sort of aiming for the best life, the ideal life, your best life, which those things can be totally well-intended, but there's a risk of thinking you got to have it all. You got to have everything that as it were, a good life is lacking in nothing. And that that's an idea that goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. Now, Aristotle also thinks we should focus on the ideal life lacking in nothing. And it doesn't really on reflection, you know, make sense. No one's life, not even the lives of people we look around and see and envy is lacking in nothing. Everyone's life is sort of partial and limited and there are blind spots and things they can't do. And whatever kind of good lives were uh, are humanly possible, they have to be compatible with that. That's again, part of what I mean about aiming for a life that's good enough, not the best or the ideal life. And when you think about a good life in that way, it's easier to see why it's possible and how it's possible for someone who lacks access to some significant range of goods. So maybe they're blind, they can't look at beautiful paintings or sunsets. But life is not about having everything. And it's not really about those absences. It's about the positives. It's about finding what positively is good in your life. And even a significant sort of narrowing of capacities or abilities can leave in place an enormous range of good things, enough good things to have a good enough life. And I mean, this is something that the social science of disability seems to confirm. So there are these results that were initially very surprising that are pretty robust in the social science of disability, that when you look at people who have a, a kind of localized physical disability, it's more complicated if you have you know incredibly pervasive disabilities or psychological disabilities, or depression is another thing altogether. But if you have a, a localized physical disability, like you need a wheelchair or you're deaf, social science suggests people with those conditions adapt surprisingly quickly. Their reported levels of life satisfaction and the meaning they find in life it's not appreciably less than other people. And you know you might be skeptical of that, but I think it actually makes perfect sense when you think in terms of a good enough life as one that has enough good things in it, which is all that most of us can hope for anyway. I should say that you know, as well as the limitation that you know, some people's disabilities are more life impacting than that, there's also this important point that when disability activists make this point, they qualify it in a way that helpfully and importantly points to social circumstances. So part of the slogan is something like, if social circumstances didn't mean that lacking one ability had these terrible knock-on effects, yeah, got it. it will be much easier for people who have, who are say blind to have a good life. If your blindness also means you can't get around the city and you can't get an education and you can't get a job, now what should be a kind of localized loss of ability becomes this sort of pervasive problem. Now we've got trouble, but the trouble there is coming from the social circumstances that compound the effects of a localized disability. And that's the thing we should focus on. 
You've explained what the disability advocates have been saying for some time really well, actually. I hadn't actually got my head into it that deeply. That's the knock-on effects, you know, like, all right, I might be blind. I will actually find a way to wrestle with that and actually max it because that's what happens. You know, that's what humans do when we have our scope limited. But don't then make it more difficult for me, you know, when I step out into life and try to have a good life and contribute to good life. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And of course, Kieran, the paradox of choice comes into all of this. When we have our choices narrowed, not only are we happier, we have less anxiety, we're more likely to be able to step forward and make decisions for ourselves. The more choices that we have, and this is the real issue I think that many um, people in today's society face, is that when you're meant to have a happy life and you're meant to have your best, most blissful life, like where the hell do you start choosing the path forward into that life? Because there's so many choices. And I'm just wondering, actually, I mean, for the average person who might not suffer pain or might not have a disability, their choices are not necessarily externally limited. I mean, how can we go about trying to, well, I guess, live a good life, live our good life, our life that is good enough? What are some, I guess, pragmatic steps that people can make to ensure that they don't fall into that trap of thinking they've got to do everything, they've got to max everything, they've got to have the best life? I think you're right that it connects with the paradox of choice, the sort of sense that it can be a curse to have too many options. And that I think one thing we're prone to here is a kind of existential FOMO where you make some big life decision. And in the same way as you think, you know, maybe I should have gone to that other party or they seem to be having more fun over on that side of the room. You can think, oh God, I could have done something else with my life. Why did I stick with this job? Or why did I leave this job? And I think one way to to sort of reframe one's life in a way that can, can sort of put that into a, a better perspective is to think, look, missing out is a kind of inevitable feature of human sort of existence. The fact that we have to make choices, there are going to be things you miss out on. Yes. And unless you're, you know, there are some choices where it doesn't matter. You know, do you want 50 bucks or do you want a hundred bucks? I'll have a hundred bucks. You're not going to be filled with regret. But most of the time when we make choices, the things that we're choosing between are not in that way equivalent. So whatever we do, there is a genuine loss in whatever, whatever we're not doing. And A, I think we need to acknowledge that. Again, I think just sort of not denying that is important. But B, I think you have to sort of ask yourself, why is it that the best seems to be out of reach, that we, we can't have a life that's lacking in nothing, that things always seem to be left out? The reason why that is, it's sort of a function of something amazing. It's a function of the fact 
that life offers so many good things and that we are able to appreciate them. So if you try to imagine, well, suppose I wanted to have a life where I didn't miss anything. I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. How would that be possible? The only way you could have a life where you don't feel like you're missing out on anything would be if there really wasn't very much worth wanting in the world, or you don't really appreciate anything but this one little thing you have. And when you put it in those terms, the fantasy of sort of missing out on nothing, what it would take to be able to achieve it is something that no one really wants. We, we sort of want a world, and we should want a world in which we're always missing out. We're always getting only some of what's there because the world is so rich. And again, that's sort of the only way to deal with that is to think, well, okay, I'll, I can have enough that's good. I can't have everything. And that's good. That's, a, that's something to welcome. In some respects, what you're saying is a little academic. You've got to get your head around it and then you sort of start to let the feelings settle into yourself that, okay, FOMO is not a bad thing. But I think that's the point of philosophy, isn't it? Is you read great philosophical works or you read a book like yours, which gives a good overview of all the different contributions and wisdoms throughout history, in part because we need to train our brains into thinking differently. And this is how I, you know, I call it soul nerding, where you go and read about the ways that other people have had to wrangle with the same issues that you're wrangling with now. And there's a incredible comfort in knowing, wow, this is a common aspect of the human experience. I'm not alone. But B, you then start to just get some of these quite cerebral wisdoms it's sort of flowing through you, becoming a part of your material reality. And then your lived experience can start to settle into that that new paradigm. Does that make sense? Both of those things really seem, ring true to me. I mean, but both the sense that there's a kind of cognitive therapy where you're talking to a therapist about the false beliefs you have about your mother's feelings about you. And then there's the kind of cognitive therapy where you're thinking, what are the false beliefs I have about value and the world and human freedom? And, you know, the, the second is, is this more abstract philosophical thing, but it can work in the same kind of way that you, that, that once the, the sort of shifts in belief sink in and kind of are absorbed into your life, it can change how you feel. Sometimes it takes more than just thinking about it in both kinds of therapy. You can sort of see the truth and then think, yeah, my feelings are not catching up. But. I mean, the other thing you said that I think is also true and was, is, is a kind of joy of writing about hardship, and it's weirdly enough, is that in the course of doing it, I found so many other writers who have written beautifully about hardship, like Julian Barnes writing about the death of his wife, or there's a French writer who Julian Barnes actually translates called Alphonse Daudet, who writes about the, the pain of being syphilitic. This is in 19th century France. He was a contemporary of Flaubert, and, or reading Anne Boyer right in her book, The Undying, writing about cancer. These are all authors whose sort of testimony of what they went through and descriptions of it, those descriptions are, are deeply moving and do kind of philosophical work. So one kind of line I really wanted to break down and blur, and that was part of my sort of sh shift from academic philosophy into writing about philosophy for a wider audience, is the shift between a kind of philosophical approach that's sort of primarily argument-driven and about theories to one where we try to connect that with just describing what people's lives are actually like in a way that the literature does and memoir does and and autobiography does. So sort of writing about my own experience is sort of part of that. It's kind of an interesting thing that I still don't think I fully understand the sort of alchemy whereby describing something you're going through or reading someone else describing the thing you're going through can have such profound effects on how you experience it. But, but I think it really can. 
I dare I say it, I think there's a little bit of it is what it is, as in this is so inherent to the human experience. The writing of it as well and the sharing of it, I think is it's a strange one. I mean, I do the same technique. I share my experiences and then bring in sort of broader philosophies, which I think just, you know, we're human, we're storytellers. That's what we respond to. That's what we need to be able to get a message through. So it is a strange experience. I totally agree with you writing memoir when really you want to be sort of talking theoretically, but it is the most effective technique. (laughs) I might actually move to, I think you've got a chapter that talks about loneliness. And one of the things that you refer to is the fact that really, if you boil it down, a lot of loneliness stems from the fact that we don't have friends or not enough friends. And you'd be aware of this statistic. I think one in five middle-aged men literally have not a single friend that they can call on. I mean, that's a significant percentage of the population. You say it really beautifully. You say, when we are friendless, our value goes unrealized, you know, and I think I'm quoting you here. I've just sort of written this down. While others may treat us with distant respect, our worth as a human being is unappreciated, unengaged. That's why our reality feels precarious. To be friendless is to feel oneself shrinking, disappearing from the human world. And I've always said that obviously being in pain or having a chronic illness can really, really see you move um, or disappear from the human world for slabs of time. So you get to live this out very fully. But I think the big thing with loneliness is not having someone to bear witness to your life. I'm wondering if you could talk about how philosophy can assist us, you know, it can be something of a cure to this type of loneliness. Absolutely. I mean, I I think this connects, in fact, very closely with what we were just talking about, because part of what happens when you write or when you read someone else talking about, say, chronic pain is that you feel less alone. You feel a kind of, you feel this sense of witness, even at at a distance. What I think is sort of illuminating in the sort of philosophical thinking about friendship is is a shift from a way of thinking about friendship that you find in Aristotle and other ancient thinkers where it's sort of meritocratic. Like the point, the basis of friendship is that someone else is awesome. And the reason why friendship makes you feel good is that you're awesome, they're awesome. And there's a certain attraction to that. But actually, I think it it's very distorting. I mean, actually, it's possible to be friends with people who don't, who aren't particularly awesome. They're just regular people or they have all kinds of vices. This, I suppose, is is most common with family where you love people in your family and you look at them and it's not that they're particularly admirable in any way. What's actually happening is in a way the opposite of that. It's that friendship is a kind of condition in which we're able to appreciate someone else and able to be appreciated in a way that's not meritocratic. It's independent of having to earn that kind of appreciation. It's independent of whether we are in some way unusually impressive. It's We're loved sort of despite our faults or, or independent of whether we have faults. And what that suggests is that this sort of more modern way of thinking about friendship, which I think is is really onto something, is that the kind of what friendship is really acknowledging, what love in general is acknowledging, it doesn't have to be, you know, outside the family. It could be romantic love, it could be your parents, it could be your kids. What it's acknowledging is the the sort of irreplaceable worth of another human being, which is the very same value that we recognize and should recognize in every human being. And in that way, this picture of friendship suggests that it's sort of continuous with compassion and respect and forms of acknowledgement and witness that don't necessarily involve having a deep involved relationship. And so the, the prediction would be, well, if you want to be, if, if what we're missing is acknowledgement and uh, acknowledging other people, we don't have to 
sort of dive into a deep relationship, just paying attention to someone else is already scratching the same itch. And that, in fact, is again, what, when you look at the social science, it suggests that that's really true, that even just briefly spending time listening to a stranger. There are these studies where they ask people to go onto a train and ask someone, ask a stranger something interesting about themselves and tell them something interesting. And people are like very awkward about doing it. And they're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. But actually, it's not as bad as they fear. People very rarely rebuff them. And even just that moment of connection can have a kind of significant effect on one's sense of isolation. So I'm not saying that's a substitute for friendship, but what it suggests is, yeah, just being witnessed and acknowledged, not feeling invisible is really the kind of root phenomenon. And that's the thing to address uh, on the way to the kind of richer friendships we might want to develop. Yeah, it's very consistent with aspire to a life that's good enough. We don't have to go and find the bombastic, amazing, bestie BFFs necessarily. We get almost as much joy and nourishment from everyday interactions. And it reminds me of something Eric Fromm writes about in The Art of Loving, which is just a stunning book on all of this kind of thing, where he basically says, we've got it kind of all wrong. It's not so much about trying to make ourselves more lovable or being like wonderfully bombastic BFFs to other people. Really, the art of loving comes in the act of loving of actually loving other people. And you can engage in that in all kinds of ways, like finding somebody on the train interesting. Everyone has a beautiful story and it's an art form to find the barista down the road or the bus driver that you you know have to stand next to because the bus is crowded and you have a little bit of a chat to them. There is a beautiful art form to finding that kind of company, that kind of friendship important and nourishing. And as you say, it's a stepping stone. It builds that muscle towards all kinds of different relationships. Really what you're saying is get out there and just start, even if it doesn't seem like it's starts Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't let the, don't let the best be the enemy of the good. It's like, don't, don't think, well, there's a kind of catch 22 where if you're thinking about yourself and the relationship that you might have, it's going to get in the way of just paying attention to someone else in this small moment that's happening. And it's that paying attention that is both valuable in itself and also the, the path to genuine reciprocity. I think that that's, on that point, I think that passage you quoted from, from Frome seems exactly right. Okay. Now, of course, because you're a philosopher, you had to tackle this kind of philosophical quandary of the absurdity of life <laughs> towards the end of your right, book. Exactly. I, <laughs> you, you had to, had, check you had that to go one there. Yeah. You had to go there. Yeah. Philosophers throughout history have tried to, you know, to, to find a way to basically, I don't know. We ask of life, what is its meaning? You know, life is kind of comes back to and goes, oh, yeah, I don't know. There isn't one. It stumps us and it has the time immemorial. And I think you tackle it through a number of different anecdotes. But one that I quite enjoyed reading through is you have a quite a complex theory for combating the despair of absurdist realism. And you talk us through a scenario that you draw from a book called Children of Men, I think it is, a novel by P.D. James, which got turned into a movie, where the whole world turns infertile. So nobody's able to have children. The human race is going to come to an end. And you explain how this thought experiment leads you to an idea of life's meaning in the absence of anything else. Can you talk us through that? I know it's a little complex, but it does lead to a singular motif. Um, and we're going to have to give away the end of the book, I'm afraid. But I know, I know. It's yeah. a, <laughs> no, I'm happy to do that. No, Please. no. I mean, so, so the, I mean, this comes out of a kind of idea that is in William James, this philosopher, psychologist who talks about in the varieties of religious experience, he says, every religion involves a total reaction upon life 
a reaction or kind of attitude to what he calls the whole residual cosmos. And then the question is, well, if you take away religion, which not all of us do, but if we're thinking about the absurdity of life, we're probably thinking in, in sort of secular terms. We think, well, we still have these sort of total reactions to life. If you ask, how do you feel about human life as a whole or the universe and your place in it? People have all kinds of different feelings, but it can seem like there's no answer to how we should feel. We just have feelings and it's all kind of arbitrary. And that's the sense of absurdity. Yeah. Like where's, where's the stake in the ground that we can all write about and hang on to, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's the perverse strategy I take is to say, well, is it all arbitrary how we feel about the shape of human history and the place of humanity in the cosmos? Let's start with some really bleak scenarios and see if we all feel the same way about them. And so the scenario is, is one in which all of humanity is sterile, infertile. There's going to be no future generations. And there are all kinds of practical things you could get hung up on, like who's going to take care of the aging people or you know what's going to happen to the economy. But P.D. James and subsequent thinkers have sort of seen an existential issue here, which is humanity is going to go extinct in this scenario, not in some blaze of profound suffering. It's just going to fade away. How should we feel about that? And if you're like me and like most people, you think, not only do I feel like that is really bleak, you think someone who didn't think that's really bleak would be kind of missing something. Like this, There really is a way, there's a total reaction you should have to the whole residual cosmos if it involves something like that. And the scenario P.D. James draws is one in which there's, you know, people are terribly unhappy, there's conflict, there's mistrust, there's fighting for the final resources. It's very bleak. But they also give up on their hobbies and go, what's the point? If humanity is coming to an end, why should I bother enjoying these things that used to thrill me, you know, or, or nourish me in some way? Yeah, exactly. Like, what's the point of, of making music or podcasts or you know yeah. what, whatever things you know who, who's going to even listen to these podcasts so th there's a sense that legacy the, 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 mm. yeah it sort of seeps into so much that you're doing that it, it sort of loses its value and what that suggests is well we have a deep investment in the survival of humanity it's a it's the same kind of investment that comes up in another bleak scenario which is scientists who talk about ecological grief who are you know on the front lines of the climate crisis watching ecosystems die who feel the sense that like something deeply valuable is just gone. Mm, solastalgia, they're calling it, aren't they? And I've done an episode on that just recently, yes. It's both real and really something that we faced with human extinction would sort of feel about ourselves. And so I think the question with this rate, what, what this, the good news in the terrible news is actually, it's not just arbitrary how we feel. There are ways human history could go that we should feel really a certain way about. Now, so far, they've been ways that are really bad. Namely, this is really bleak. We're losing a sense of the value of everything. But once you think, okay, I'm open to the idea that there are certain ways human life could go that sort of there is a reaction that we should have to them, in this case, negative, you can start to ask, well, okay, how would human history have to go for it to be able to prompt and make sense of and justify some other response? And here's a way to think about that that I think connects with really sort of basic questions about the meaning of life. It, it's this. It's in a way, I think, unless something really miraculous happens, humanity is going to go extinct at some point. I think 
that's going to happen. We know that rationally. Be- we we don't. Yeah. And of course, I know that you've interviewed, um, or sorry, you've actually reviewed Will McCaskill's latest book, you know, who's in that whole realm of the existential risk stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of uh, factors <laughs> bringing forward that timeline at the moment. Yeah. No, people are, are really worried about it. This parallel, it, it, this, <laughs> this thought experiment is, I think, really pertinent. And it, yeah, it seems real to us now in a way it, it might not. I, although I think, you know, Jonathan Shell wrote in the 19th, 90s, a book called The Fate of the Earth, in which it seemed real to him because of nuclear, you know, it's the Cold War. Nuclear threat. And he was Absolutely. worried about nuclear weapons. Yeah. So we're going to go extinct at some point. How could this happen in a way that we could actually be okay with? And I think, well, suppose it happened not like it does in Children of Man, in of conflict and demoralization. Suppose what happened was, yeah, humanity became sterile, but it happened in a society in which we had eradicated the major forms of injustice, basic human needs were met, and people are able to respond to this very difficult scenario with honesty, but also compassion. You know, that they, they have the kind of response to, they find a way to live in the circumstances a good enough life. I would think if humans could, as it were, go out that way. Go out with a bang. That wouldn't be great. But I feel like we could be okay with that. That's sort of the best we can hope for. And that will be good. And if, on the other hand, there's just perennial injustice and there's never a point in the human future at which the sort of legacy of, of suffering and exploitation that we're, we're sort of struggling with in the world around us gets sort of rectified or repaired in any way, then, yeah, it's going to be pretty bleak. And what that suggests is that if we want to sort of have a positive attitude when we step back and look at the whole of human history and ask, you know, how do I feel about life, the universe, and everything? Something that's both sort of deeply important, maybe necessary, essential, and also maybe would do a lot of working justifying that positive reaction is to be able to understand the history of human life as on a trajectory towards if not, you know, perfect. There isn't. I don't think there's going to be utopia, but towards justice and away from the kind of injustice where, where we sort of fight in the world around us. And thought is, if that was true, we'd be able to tell the story of the world and human history in a way that makes us think, yeah, that was worth we it. We can feel proud of that. Yeah. We can feel that's all right. That's not bad. And that would be in a way that it's not like a kind of religious salvation, but it's it's a way of saying there is a meaning of life. There's an interpretation of human life that a kind of truth about how human life goes that tells us how to feel and how we should feel is okay, maybe proud about human how human history has gone. And in that way, like justice really is, I think, central to that. So pursuing justice, attending to injustice, if I was just to really boil it down to a very pithy statement, is the point of life, is the meaning of life. Is that what you're sort of saying? That is the, yeah, the punchline is, right, if, 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 if we want life to have meaning, then the way we can give it meaning, it's not just going to have it. We have to give it meaning by making the human history bend towards justice. And that would be a meaning that life would have that we would have made and that we could be proud of. Yeah, right. And, yeah, and that, of course, that's the, these kinds the, the sort of, of hope. existential thought experiments, which are not so much just a theoretical concept anymore, they're, they're, they're things we've got to face and you know, grapple with over coming decades, but they exist to get us to go, all right, well, if that's the case for that scenario, then let's bring it back in closer to my existence here on this planet, you know, over the course of 85 odd years or something. Let's apply it now. 
I mean, that's the point of philosophy, isn't it? We use these stories, these thought experiments, these theoretical concepts to then apply it to the pursuance of a good life now. And I, I do love that as a point to existence. And boy, do we need that injection of direction right now. I think injustice is just at the core of so much of what we're struggling with. We could talk about that for a long time. I think people can go and read your book and yes, we've kind of given away the ending of the book. But I do ask (laughs) this question and again, it's from Eric Fromm, another book of his, where he poses the question to himself at some stage, you know, what is left if we lose it all? Would you mind answering that question, Kieran, and I suspect I know the answer. <laughs> I think the thing that comes to mind when I think about what's left if if we lose it all is this Kafka quote where he, he says, you know, there's plenty of hope, no end of hope, only not for us. And he means it in a kind of bleak sort of, you know, sardonic way that, you know, hope is for other people. We're, we're doomed. But actually what I think is in a way, if we think about the fact that, you know, things might end badly for us, meaning you, me, the people who are listening, it, you know, it's going to end. That there is plenty of hope, even if not for us. There's plenty of hope, which is hope for the next generation and for the future of humanity. So what I think is if we lose it all, we're not the only people. There's there's a whole future out there to be invested in. And, you know, parents will have a certain perspective on this. But even if you're not a parent, so much of what you do, I mean, the thought experiment about sterility and infertility sort of makes this vivid. So much of what we do is already dependent on and invested in a kind of future in which it and its legacy survives. And so if we lose it all, we still have all of that to fight for. Yeah, which um, speaks to, again, sort of, you know, Will McCaskill et al.'s long-termism mindset, which has its problems, its limitations, but as a framework, I think it's quite eye-opening and heart-opening to get us think about that broader framework. Hey, Kieran, I've really enjoyed this chat. I reckon I could keep going and going, but good luck with everything. And thank you for that final wisdom. It's an important one. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Gosh, I love how a thesis can unfurl its way to a conclusion that really fundamentally delights our humanity. I mean, imagine the meaning of life is to attend to justice. Now, I'll just read out a bit in Kieran's book that I think speaks to this wonderfully. He writes, justice matters then, not only for its own sake, but as an antidote to absurdity. Human existence as a whole would not have meaning if the good things in it were distributed in ways that are perpetually unjust. To overcome injustice is to forge a truth that tells us how to feel and so give meaning to life. I guess in the final wash-up, this is what matters to us. And so the invite that Kieran issues is to live this way now, immediately, go straight to the thing, do not pass go. The other pearl I got from this chat with Kieran, and we cover it a little earlier in the conversation, no one can max and live out all the happy making things available on this planet. We won't get to them all in a lifetime. We get to a small selection perhaps. So if you extrapolate that out, If your options are narrowed, say due to illness, misfortune or disability or other hardships, then it doesn't mean you have less access to a good life than anyone else. For all of us will only have a narrow set of options anyway. The opportunity then is to max the options we do have available to us. 
This line of sound reasoning really got me to see the wonderfully sophisticated argument that disability activists make, but also the subtlety of another point they make, that disadvantage can come in when structures stop people from being able to max their options. One final thing. I really do think that philosophy has a growing and important part to play in life just now, filling the void where maybe self-help books stepped in, which I've got to say, and I've always felt this way, are so individualistic and they're just not cutting it in this day and age. If you're a self-help devotee, perhaps think about shifting into the philosophical realm and reading books like Life is Hard, written by expansive and honest thinkers like Kieran. I'll leave that one with you, and until next time, stay as wild as you can. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.